0: namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sambhudasa buddham damang sangang namasami. Continuing with the great discourse on blessings, the Mangala Sutta, we have covered about five of these blessings and you should mind them deeply Now we've kind of done preliminary work and the next blessing is to set oneself in the right direction. Now this is a translation and there's a number of ways of expressing the Pali. But it is primarily to begin, to begin a path. And this requires, this is an inner determination. So what we've done in the previous ones is set up a situation with who we're going to uh, dwell with, who we're going to live with, and where we're going to live, and then we have to initiate ourselves in the right direction. And this is a very beautiful point on the path. This is a blessing that you can give yourself, and it's a long time ago, I don't know, 25 years ago, I uh, was invited to uh, a monastery in, in uh, Texas. It was a, a combination of Theravada and Mahayana Monastery, and they were having celebrating the Buddha's birthday. And they had a very special guest there, and that was a monk named Dhammavaro, Ajahn Dhammavaro. And at that time, he was 100 years old. And I had had been in the robes for just a brief period of time. And in fact, actually, it had to be more than 25 years ago. It had to be 32 years ago. Because I remember it was just my first year in robes. So we got to go up and see him, they had him in a a nice special room. He was visiting from California. He was originally from Cambodia and uh, he had been in the robes at that time. He had ordained late actually. He had ordained when he was 40. Now he was in the robes for 60 years. So we went up to see him and actually he was lying down and still receiving visitors and each of us, we had a little chat with him. He was very lucid and friendly. And uh, each of us got to ask a question. To, and my question was, uh, I have been in the robes for, this is my first year in the robes. So do you have any advice for me? And he said, begin well and you'll end well. So it was a very uh, something I took to heart and remembered to this day, and it is about beginnings. And to take care with beginnings. How you start something gives you an atmosphere and a kind of determination for the journey. And so this is something interesting to contemplate in this blessings. How do you bless yourself? you decide what it is you want to do, where do you want to go. And of course the Buddha here is giving a number of suggestions about where you want to go and setting up all of the ideal preconditions for the journey and the goals. And later on in, the, in this discourse you will get to the, higher, the highest of the goals possible. But this is the point where you've made all the preliminary arrangements, you've cleared the decks, and you are now about to go on the journey. So this is something to remember in terms of that not to start casually, not to start with doubt, but to start with clear determination to do this well. This is a beginning. And the beginnings are very, very important. How you begin. So this is to set yourself in the right direction. What is the right direction? Well this is the path really and uh, there's a number of other elements to the path, secondary elements depending on what kind of lifestyle you're living, whether you're living as a monastic or whether you're living as a layperson. Uh, we will discuss all of those aspects for each type of lifestyle. But to to set oneself in the right direction is that uh, in the lay lifestyle, you're going to have a number of things to accomplish and are important to your maintenance of your life. And they're going to be different than the monastic lifestyle. And the Buddha is a very practical, pragmatic teacher. You may think of the Buddha as a very mystic kind of uh, guru, but actually he's full of very practical advice for most areas of life. And this sutta is given in the fifth century BC. And by the way, if you remember the story, there's, this is these are visiting devas; these are angelic beings visiting and getting advice, <laughs> and the. What's amazing is the, the advice is relevant to humans and above, and also is fully relevant to the 5th century BC and the 21st century AD, or in Buddhist terms, the 26th century, that we're in the 26th century uh, of the Buddhist Sasana. And these uh, practical directions are absolutely as relevant now as they were any time previously. So this is very important. It's the right attitude to begin with the right attitude. Now this is parallel also of course to the Eightfold Path, it's right understanding, a right view of things. And of course with the Four Noble Truths is the beginning of things is getting clear what the situation is. What is it we're deciding to make central to our existence. So these are, you have to clarify what it is that you're about to embark on, and then everything else will be in the context of that. So the practical matters that we're going to talk about are commonly practiced throughout the world in all kinds of places, by all kinds of people, and they'll recognize these things. But also, always, in, for, the, for this, as it's Buddhist advice, the Buddha, is all, it's always in the context of the Eightfold Path and the vision of life. So it's not just a matter of mulling things over in your head, but practical matters about how to conduct yourself in life. So this next blessing is to be well-spoken. And the magic of language what it is to be a human, is to be a sophisticated communicator. And you will notice that throughout the world, actually, the gift of articulation and a good voice is amazingly helpful. Now, who is the supreme speaker in the sasana? Actually, the Buddha. So, what he's saying is words matter. Delivery of words matter. How it is articulated, how it is framed, is the ultimate possibility of a gift to another, and especially in the human world. And if you are not articulate and you don't understand language, you're going to be at a disadvantage because you won't be able to understand the Dhamma. The Buddha is very careful in these suttas, and they're remarkable remarkable uh, information. And of course, they were all delivered orally. So there was no writing in the Buddhist world at that time. And that's why this emphasis on the spoken word. And to this day, of course, we have all of these media of, you know, you can easily look up the suttas and, and read anything. But still, here I am talking to you. So the spoken word has a kind of a richness to it. As you can articulate, you can suggest just the tone of voice, the range of the voice, the choice of words, where the emphasis is on the words. So that is what is meant by well-spoken. And you can articulate both for yourself and for others. I think you'll see in uh, psychology that when there are, is a poverty of vocabulary, parts of the world are missing. If there are no names for things, if there is no way to express it, the mind actually can't see what it can't name. And once certain things are articulated for you, described for you, you're given the names of them and how they work, they appear in the world. So we can see that some people will walk by certain things and not appreciate and understand what they just walked by. This happens in all kinds of things like music, for instance. Uh, Some people, because they don't understand the type of music that's being played or the depths of music that's being played, they don't hear it. Art as well, all aspects of the human world and also in nature as well. The world is enriched through your capacity to articulate it, and the Buddha is giving you some practical advice about how to enrich your life. And of course, the enrichment of relationships as well, is to be able to have a vocabulary of ideas and words in order to communicate these things. So. If the Buddha had not been able to articulate these things, uh, only a few people would have understood him. And this is the case. Sometimes brilliant people can do it themselves, but they can't express it. And there is this uh, special kind of being in Buddhist structures called the Pacheka Buddha. And Pacheka means silent, a silent Buddha arises. And this is at a time when a fully enlightened Buddha, a Sama Buddha, is not in existence. And somebody who is very developed and has unique insights arises, but cannot articulate it clearly enough to create a sasana or a kind of a religious movement. So this is the Difference the primary difference between a fully enlightened Buddha and the next level of attainment They both have figured it out for themselves, but one can express it very clearly and move people To change their lives for the better So this is a beautiful and important element both for the Buddha and all the way down the line to the household life as well So The next blessing is to be highly trained and this is maximized in Buddhist training for monastics. It's one of the most disciplined possible lifestyles you can take up. This particular forest tradition that I'm in is a feature of the forests of Thailand and the the discipline for the monks is is radical. It's kind of like being on a, a mountain climbing expedition for your whole life. You're up very early in the morning. You're practicing all day long. You have abandoned distractions and not engaging in the family life at all. So you're devoting all of your waking hours to a type of discipline. And you're training yourselves in it. And this is the the vocabulary that we use in this tradition, the training. So when you go forth and are ordained, you you go forth in the training and the first five years of your life are with a qualified teacher and you spend that time and you're in your, your new monk phase, your first five years of your new monk phase and you're actually not to be independent during that period. You're under observation all the time and you're having the support of a community and a training structure around you. And it's constant training. After five years, if you're manifesting the training, then you are given independence to practice and train on your own, if you wish. Many monks remain with the community and still benefit from their association. But it's an opportunity at that time also to be on your own in solitude and see how your training is going. Have you trained yourself well enough? This, of course, applies to the secular world as well. It is also a feature of, of wisdom at this time to be without skills in this world, without education in this world, without training, without discipline will basically guarantee you to have a, an impoverished and, and miserable life. <laughs> training is the key and humans can be trained. You can train yourself. We benefit by repetition and we keep at it. So you can see this in all walks of life. Athletes devote themselves to training and it pays off. You can see the body and mind can both be trained. Artists, musicians, scholars, scientists all go through extended periods of training and you get good fruit from that experience. And so the Buddha says, don't overlook these things. It's not by luck. It doesn't happen by luck. It doesn't happen by the stars. So th- this is a, a feature of a lot of people looking for magical solutions to their life. They want money, they want fame, they want health, they want this and that, and they, they look for, these, these they feel that those would be blessings to have, but they don't know how to get them. And the Buddha, being this Eastern light of Asia, You would think it'd be some sort of mystical incantation. Maybe you have a mantra or something that if you say it enough times, then the money falls in your lap or something comes to you this way and that way, the wish fulfillment so forth. No. (laughs) It gives you very, maybe disappointingly, pragmatic language. (laughs) Oh, you want success, do you? Well, you better be competent in your area. You better know. If you're going to be a farmer, you better know how to farm. And that means go and get advice and watch who is the successful farmer, and then go ask questions from that farmer. Find out, work with the farmer, learn. If you want to be a scientist, train with the scientists. If you want to be a monk, go and train with the well-trained monks. If you want to be a musician, uh, you have to train. And there is no way around it. It's not by luck. It doesn't fall out of the sky give up these kind of esoteric ideas that are just hoping to bypass the necessary work. So the, the Buddha's prescription for blessings is that it, it takes effort and determination and it is reasonable. He's a very reasonable person and he says, uh, success comes from well-reasoned action and you need to educate yourself, and train yourself and don't neglect that, don't be lazy, don't be neglectful, don't uh, rejoice in your ignorance. The source of enlightenment is actually knowledge, and the impediment to knowledge and enlightenment is ignorance. So this is in the spiritual dimension, this is the, the feature of what we would call dependent origination, the processes how one becomes enlightened. And the biggest impediment to it is ignorance. You just don't know how to be well. And in the world, in the activities of the world, how to make a livelihood, how to live a proper and balanced life is also impeded by ignorance. And you will see people living in dire conditions, dreadful conditions, because primarily they're ignorant. Now, it's not only the Buddha that has noticed this. This is articulated by other great thinkers in history as well. They say that our enemy is ignorance and our friend is knowledge. So we are engaged in a long and intense process of learning and unveiling things and bringing what is in the dark into the light. So along with this highly trained is another word, uh, which we would translate as well-educated, full of learning. So training is, is a kind of process where your knowledge becomes second nature. So if you're training in a sport, you can't be thinking during that. The body has to be able to pull it off instantly. And if you have in practical matters, your body has to be trained and in other areas of life, the mind has to be trained so that it becomes, the skills become second nature. So if you're typing on a, on a keyboard, you don't have to look at the keys anymore. just, both the mind and the fingers can find it. If you're playing the piano, you can't be looking for the key. It's got to be trained in, it becomes second nature. But education is another matter, it's a larger matter where it's not second nature, it's, it's how to approach things, how to approach gaining knowledge. And you'll see that the structure that the Buddha uses in these suttas is very similar to modern ideas about presenting information and is primarily what is called essay form. Essay form is this. First, I tell you what I'm going to say. Then I say it. And then I say, I tell you what I just said. <laughs> it's three parts. The theme, the body, and a recapitulation. By the way, this is, uh, this is also the structure of, of a lot of music as well. Some of the great sonatas and uh, orchestral forms are that a theme is stated, the theme is expounded upon and the theme is recapitulated or played again at the end to, to notice that you've what you've done with this. So it works in all aspects of life. So these suttas that the Buddha gives are, remember they're, they're oral suttas and there is nothing written down So people have to remember them. So they particularly emphasize this and he will say things three times. And usually, the beginning of the sutta is they will say, they will tell you what, you're, what they're about to say. And so, this, the Mangala Sutta is this is a talk on great blessings. Then, each of the blessings is articulated in brief. And at the end, they will conclude it with, These, if undertaken, will lead to your well being, and so forth. And then, there are, of course, this is a, a very compact form. And it is the tree of knowledge, basically, where you have branches and twigs and leaves coming off of the main trunk of the tree of knowledge. And so as I'm giving this talk here, I have a couple of words, like well-educated, and then I talk for the next 10 minutes about what it is to be well-educated in the structure of education. So this thing expands out. the Mangala Sutta fits on a page, a written page. But that's not enough that there are simple, uh, a few little phrases. Uh, it's also repetitious, so at the end of each section of these blessings, there'll be three, two, two or three or four blessings in a row, and then there's a phrase, etang, Mangalang Utamang." Etang, this, Mangala, is blessing, uttama is high, very high, or ultimate blessing. This is an ultimate blessing. This is a high, supreme, beautiful blessing. And this phrase keeps recurring. And each section of this, and they're they're in different kind of stratas of of life. There's some very practical levels. There's the initiation of uh, mind states, Etc., and then development all the way up to enlightenment. And each of these is followed by this little phrase, Etang Mangalang Uttamang. And so this is said in this way, so it's a memory structure. And monks at the time would spend a lot of time chanting together. And to this day, this is one of the most commonly chanted suttas in the repertoire. This happens in music as well especially in uh, improvised music like jazz or folk, everybody knows a bunch of songs and they have a certain kind of structure to them and you can improvise within them but you get together and practice them and you hear them again and again and you hear them played in different ways and certain things emerge from that, the repetition of these things. So this talk on the mangala Sutta will be another drop in the bucket of talks on uh, the Mangala Sutta from monks all over the world, all through the centuries. Because it's a rich source. It's a it's a, a kind of a an evergreen, what we call in music an evergreen. It never goes out of style. And it's compact. So the monks would practice this. And the Buddha gives it in a form where a group of monks can easily Memorize it, and you see the refrain, what's called the refrain, etang mangalam uta So this is a... They knew the structure of how human memory works and how you can internalize information and have it available, and then you can extrapolate it as well. Skilled in handicraft. So this is interesting. You know, as a monk or one aspiring to become a monk in my early days, Uh, my idea of Buddhist monks particularly was that they meditated a lot under trees or something or in a very simple environment. But as I became a monk and I was associating with the, especially the forest monks, I realized there's a whole element of practical skills as well and including handicraft, and including, of course, monks making their own their robes. And this is, up to the very recent times, it's done by hand stitching. You have to go and collect uh, cloth, and some of the preferred places for c- collecting the, particularly for the ascetic type of monk, is uh, to go to a, a garbage dump and get rags, or cloth that has been on a corpse. <laughs> it's a very common thing to uh, receive cloth that has been in contact with uh, the dead body. This is a, a form of reminding your, yourself of your own mortality. But then the monk has to go and wash it and then find dye and then stitch it together. In the area of Northeast Thailand where I was training The monks also make the dye from scratch from a jackfruit tree. And this is a long involved process, which they're very good at. And it involves taking a large piece of the tree, usually brought to the monastery by the villagers and then chipping it up with a machete. Now this can take hours and hours and hours, a lot of handwork. And then in a great basin, you boil these these chips for 12 hours and you're up all night long, stirring the, the, the soup and making this. And then you, once you have that liquid, then you have to boil the liquid down and down and down until it becomes a dense enough to be a dye. Then you have your cloth and you have, uh, by the way, so monks have to, uh, uh, where uh, clothes that are sewn back together is to make them sort of valueless. And this is called kusi lines. So all of these stitching, you, often you'll get a nice piece of cloth, but you can't use the whole cloth. You have to cut it up and then sew it back together. <laughs> then, you, then you dye it. So there's a whole level of handicraft involved, even in the spiritual life. There are duties that monks need to do, and one of them is sweeping. There's a lot of sweeping (laughs) in monastic life. Taking care of your basic requisites, your bowl and your robes, and the little dwelling that you live in, these all have to be tended in certain ways. And these are, it's appreciated. Uh, The practical skills of life are, even in the monastery, certain monks are, quite adept at things. And you learn the arts off of each other, the handicraft arts off of each other. And uh, you'll see also in the the Thai tradition, many things are crocheted. And uh, there's a whole nation of crocheting there. uh, And monks can be very, very skillful at this, the art of crochet. They're making their monks bowls and all kinds of aspects of their life. So handicraft is not to be is not an enemy of spiritual development. It's embedded in the monastic life and even more so in the householder life. So for monks we were talking about being educated in the suttas and in the lay life you have to be educated in the skills area of your life and, and also handicraft. So there are things that you can make for yourself and it's perfectly compatible with the spiritual life and the good life that you know how to do things you know how to do practical things with your with your hands and of course it's a it, it's actually quite helpful to have these things a person who has no notion of how to make anything is helpless and this is why you know as a, a child needs their parents and Some of the earliest things that a child learns is how to do uh, little crafts. So how to make things with their hands, to mold uh, clay and things like this, to paint and to make, uh, to print and to write and all of these things. These are handicrafts, literally with the hands. The hands cannot be separated from the, the mind and expression. And the last of these, this little section, is highly disciplined. So, if you think that the spiritual life is a kind of a just kicking back and taking it easy, just try a few weeks in a monastery with <laughs> the monks. Uh, they're rising at three o'clock in the morning, and not uh, and very vigorous in their life. Uh, and by the way, sitting still in meditation is one of the hardest things you can do. <laughs> if you think running a marathon is hard, try sitting for two hours <laughs> perfectly still. <laughs> to move around is is one thing. To sit still is another. All of these things, the discipline of the mind, the discipline of the body, the discipline of the inter, of the social life as well, the discipline of how to relate to each other how to think about each other how to speak to each other and how to act towards each other this is what discipline is and you will see the disciplined person they are a fountain of energy but well directed energy so that you also see people who are they're not particularly disciplined some they have frantic flurries of activity and then followed by kind of a spell of laziness and non-direction. What it means to be highly disciplined is to be able to sustain throughout the entire waking day a series of the use of the mind, the speech, and the body that is profitable, that is moving towards the goal, and the entire day is devoted to that. So we we have this word disciple, a one who listens, attends, and carries out the directions. This, ha- this works in all areas of life. In the spiritual life, we know, of course, of this, but also in the in the worldly life, in the family life, in the lay life, high discipline to be able to carry out all of these. It's not about kicking back and being lazy at all. There's no notion of this. It's a vigorous life and one uh, engages in it with full intent and that intent of course was laid down earlier to set oneself in the right direction so you started off well and you gotta—you have to start off each day well. So each day is begun well so that it ends well. And this uh, means that you Sometimes it's a matter of bodily activity, sometimes it's a matter of activity of, the, of speech, or if you're an author or an academic, then it has to be the discipline of facing a, a blank piece of paper and finding the words, the precise words, the articulated words, which comes from writing. And if you're a person who speaks, then you have to have the discipline to order your thoughts in a such a way and to deliver them through speech. And the discipline also of internal planning. This is like, how do, you, how do you order your day? How do you order the year? How do you plan your life? What are the events of it? And the projects and activities within that, that's all included in this high discipline. You can see this is a very clear manifesto for a very determined, fully engaged life. There will be no boredom, no emptiness to it, no casualness, no sloppiness to it. It's highly disciplined, very precise, full of skills and learning, and that makes a very rich life. And one time I was, I was at a Zen temple, I was still a lay person, and I was going there, and uh, the monk turned to me one day and said, do you want to be a monk? It's a rich life. And then I said, I think so. <laughs> because when you, read, when you look at the, the ascetic quality of the monk's life, it turns out, From an outside point of view, it's very minimalist, ultra-minimalist. But actually, the attempt to live this life, it, it becomes, it's exquisitely rich. It becomes a very rich experience. And that's, so we should, when we look at the spiritual life, it's not a deprived life. You're not trying to show off how little you can do with, it's actually advice on how to enrich your experience of life. This life is going by and you need it to be rich. And being it to be rich is, is not contrary to it being spiritual. So I leave those blessings for your contemplation today.